appreciate being here and I appreciate everybody who's in the room with us. Uh, I apologize for not being with you last night. I won't be with you again tonight. I had to come to Cincinnati yesterday to do some, some business. It was a labor of love, but it was some business. And when I'm home, I plan to come back this morning and uh, got a GI bug or something. And I wasn't even sure I was going to get here today. So part of the medicine that the doctor put me on may make my mouth a little dry. That's what stops your guts. That may make your mouth dry. So uh, I guarantee you, you're real happy I got my gut stopped. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. So it just makes me a little bit, a little bit dry, then just work with me. Uh, it, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, that, that Rule 62 Conference uh, gave me to do this, and that they even did it, period. Uh, one of the things that I've observed over my years of recovery is that little by little we uh, are moving away in, in many respects, and sometimes in certain areas even more than other areas of the country from staying in touch with the fundamentals and the history that got us here. Uh, and this is, a, this is a real serious deal to understand the history that got us here. And one of the things that was most instrumental uh, in getting us here was when Bill Wilson was told by Dr. Silkworth that he had a disease. And that turned Bill Wilson's life around. He subsequently took that message back to uh, Bob Smith in May of 19... Uh, uh, 34, I'm sorry, made in 1935, and he was the one who took to Dr. Bob that Dr. Bob had a disease. Dr. Bob didn't know that. He was a doctor. But no one at that time knew that this was a disease. And this was real important because once Bill Wilson understood he had a disease, it changed his whole attitude and insight into the problem they had. Now, Bill never called it a disease. He called it a malady or an illness. I don't think he admitted the word disease. Nell Wing reports this in her book, Grateful to Have Been There, that Wilson never called this a disease. He called it a malady or an illness. Silkworth had an interesting concept or an interesting insight into this. He called it, in essence, a physical allergy and a mental obsession. But one of the things he said, which I want you to track as we go through this presentation, put it in your own mind about yourself, and look at the people that we're recovering with. He says, we're irritable, restless, and discontented. Until we get a drink. Now, what I'll show you is why we're irritable, restless, and discontented. And we were actually born that way. And it's not just a simple matter of trying to avoid uh, collisions and at intersections. We literally are playing a court low on the things that will keep us from being irritable, restless, and discontented. Uh, there's another interesting thing in the big book that I think many of us just simply, either at least I did until I became a student of the book, it's in the leave two lines of more about alcoholism. When it says, and I'm sure you'll remember this, it said, the, talks about the real alcoholic. Now, I used to think when someone says, I'm a real alcoholic, I always wondered what the hell they meant. Does that mean they drank a gallon or ten gallons or two gallons or did they kill everybody they came in contact with? But the next line actually says, no one likes to admit that they are bodily and mentally different from their fellows. And a real alcoholic is someone who's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. And we're going to look at the bodily and mental difference. The, that, the, the quantity that's drunk does not define the alcoholic. Most of the time, by the time we get it, we're drinking huge quantities, but I'll show you how teenage alcoholics may not drink that much. But they are bodily and mentally different from their fellows. So stay with this. A physical allergy, mental obsession, uh, bodily and mentally different, and irritable, restless, and discontented. 
Now, I made the decision on what I would try to show y'all. This talk can go, actually, the talk I'm getting ready to give y'all with a few embellishments on it. I, it took two days to do it, about two weeks ago at the Northern Kentucky School on Alcoholism. And I'm not going to do a lot of specifics except the thyrosocosocial disease. And we literally have nailed this disease. This, the 1990s has been called the decade of the brain. And the neuroscientists have nailed addiction. We know exactly where it occurs. We know exactly the chemicals that are involved. They haven't nailed alcoholism. But they have nailed addiction, which is a part of the alcoholism spectrum in the biopsychosocial, biological, psychological, and societal disease. But we literally, or they have, and I'm a clinician, my credentials are is that I practiced medicine for 25 years. I left in 1992 to begin or to develop the impaired physician program in Kentucky. Uh, we treated approximately 500 physicians. I do the addiction work for a men and women's homeless shelter where I treat thousands of street alcoholics and drug addicts. We put these people in a year-long program of recovery, teaching them the big book of alcoholics anonymous with Joe McQueen's recovery dynamics. Uh, I'm board certified in family medicine, board certified in addiction medicine. I have a daughter who's 40, who's been in AA for 20 years, a son who's 33, he's been in AA for 15 years. I've been here for 22 years. If I haven't seen it and haven't done it, it hadn't happened. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly the truth. I mean, that is not an arrogant statement. That is the truth. And I'm trying to bring into focus the sum total of that experience. Now, if you have questions, uh, ask them. I'm going to try this. I may shoot myself in the leg when I try that. But uh, it's not a matter of you're asking the questions or my being able to answer them. It's the amount of time I've got to cover, which is about an hour and 20 minute presentation. And we're going to try to do it without any breaks. And if I'm halfway interested and you're halfway interested too, then it'll be fine. But if we get off into the, into the hinterland somewhere, half of you go to sleep, the other half will leave. Okay. <laughs> Alcoholism. Uh, was defined as a disease by the American Medical Association in 1955. The American Medical Association defined drug addiction as a disease in 1987. Stanley Gettler, who's been one of the leading educators in this field since 1953, calls this disease sedativism. And by that he meant, what a lot of people think he meant, was that a drug is a drug is a drug. That's not what Stanley meant. What he meant was is the alcoholic will not process mood-offering medication like a normal person. And we have case after case of where the person who quits drinking and decides to smoke a little dope ends up drinking. Or the person who quits cocaine and decides to do a little drinking ends up with cocaine and alcohol together. And you go right on down the line that we can't cross those lines. And when you get into treating people with depression, get into treating people uh, to operate on them and give them pain medication, that sort of stuff, then people like me who are addiction specialists know how to deal with those kind of things. Uh, and, and we do. But let me show you um, the big boy and big girl version. And don't let this thing stun you when you first look at it. To show you what they meant by sedativism and all the drugs interact, this is a certain area of the brain which has the opiate receptor sites, that's heroin, and all the other pain medicines, acting with the 
tranquilizer receptor sites, that's valium, benzodiazepine, those kind, interacting with the stimulant uh, neurotransmitter or, or electrical system, all producing the same compound, all different forms of drugs, all interacting. That tells us why that basically we cannot switch drugs without tearing up the same brain chemistry system. Opiate will increase dopamine, GABA will increase dopamine, the cocaine, all those will increase dopamine, and so will alcohol. Alcohol interacts with every one of these systems and they all interact with each other. And we hadn't known that longer than about five or six years except what we told each other clinically. And, and I'll tell you my story in a second about how I know that's true. This is the neuroanatomy of addiction. And I want to put this in so that you would walk away having some idea about where this happens in the brain. I've actually cut my brain in half this way and cut it in half this way and I'm looking right down on top of it. Half to the left and at a certain level called the limbic system which is the pain, pain pleasure system. All drugs of reward come in, no matter what drug it is, alcohol or any of the rest of them, come into this system here. Now alcohol will go almost everywhere because it's water soluble. Alcohol goes anywhere water goes. The other drugs are more fat soluble and they will end up here as well as alcohol. They are carried through a series of nerves that go up to a place in the brain called the nucleus accumbens. There's the cortex of the brain right behind the eyes. These are areas of the brain that have to do with memory. These are called the amygdala and the hippocampus. We now know that marijuana has a specific receptor system and its own neurotransmitter in this area of the brain. That's been known for about two years. And marijuana will come in and screw this whole system up. And this system has to do with memory and learning. That's why those smokers are basically measurably stupid. <laughs> I mean, above and beyond what their normal gifts were when they started. <laughs> But I want to put this in, and, and, uh, and to, just to show you, marijuana, when anyone talks about, well, I'm not going to drink anymore, but I'll smoke a little dope. That's not good news. <laughs> That's not good news, because we know marijuana reacts like the opiates. It'll do the same thing with dopamine. But even as bad as that, uh, what it will also do is it basically can destroy the area of the brain, or certainly screw it up, that has to do with, with, with learning and, and memory retention. And there is evidence today that may be prominent. Now, what we don't know is how much does it take and how long do they have to smoke it. But research for the past 15 years has told us clinically it may be permanent in a certain type of individual who's predisposed to that type of brain damage. But even if it's not permanent, it takes a long time to recover and starts to interact with all those other <coughs> systems. So I wanted to show you where it works in the brain and all the interactions so that when someone decides that they're going to play with the other mood-altering chemicals, they just are not going to get away with it. Now, my story, some of you heard it, some of you have not. The reason I tell this part of it is because I was a drug addict with no alcohol and I was an alcoholic with no drugs. And I started taking drugs my freshman year in medical school to study. I didn't take it for a high. I'd have an alcohol or drug problem during high school or college and broke around at home. My grandfather died drinking my water in Mayfield City Jail. He was a real bad alcoholic, and my mother was molested physically, emotionally, and sexually in that home. 
but she didn't drink, my daddy didn't drink, and I didn't see it. I have a brother who's 15 or 8 years younger than me, and he's been in AA for 15 years. So we didn't see it. Uh, certainly the, uh, the uh, nurture was not the key factor, it was the nature, the genetics, and we'll talk about that in more detail. There's no problem for me in high school, no problem for me in college. I started my freshman year of medical school taking amphetamine to study, everybody else did. Uh, everybody else quit. I did two weeks before graduation, I was kicked out of medical school. In the amphetamine rage, I beat up one of my professors. Uh, they asked me to go into psychiatric therapy. I did for two years, didn't take any drugs, got back into medical school, and uh, within less than an hour, I strung out on amphetamine again. And just sat and cried because I didn't know why. I had stayed in the art psychiatric care. But we know in this room that what they brought me was knowledge. And you know, our book's not against therapy. Is that me? I don't think it's me. Oh, it's not. It's not me. Because my car's on the phone. My phone's in the car. (laughs) I am better than I used to be a sweaty guy. (laughs) But maybe not a hell of a lot. But anyway, I I just said crap. The psychiatry brought me knowledge, and 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 we're not against therapy. As AA says, there's some people who may need other things, and I can show it to you in the book if you don't know what it is. And, uh, but therapy without spirituality just won't cut it for alcoholics and my type who are bodily and mentally different from their fellows. The therapy will bring us something to, to understand where the bullets are coming from. Family of origin, things like that. So we can't, boom, we keep getting hit with bullets. But even if we never learn where the bullets are coming from and deal with them spiritually, but it really makes a real good recovery if when the time comes and there's a good basis of spirituality, which usually takes about two to three years to go look at a lot of those things that are really dominating us and holding us hostage, like getting married eight times and wondering why. Or getting married four or five times. You know, or all those things that have to do with where the bullets are coming from. In any event, I had the therapy, these relapsed or used again. Uh, my classmates enabled me. I finally graduated in 64 and was in Our Lady of Peace, a mental hospital four times during my internship and residency. Uh, went in the Army, I almost got put in Leavenworth. Came back and in 1969, through a series of events, I quit taking amphetamine. I remember the surgeon who took out my gallbladder uh, and the internist uh, worked for me. We prayed, both good friends of mine, that I quit taking drugs, and that was my last drug, 1969. I'm sure the prayers helped, but I'm absolutely certain it helps. I started drinking. <laughs> and uh, the first four years I drank and it wasn't even addictive. I mean, it wasn't even alcoholic. Uh, I never thought I'd get drunk, I never thought I'd get sober. It didn't cause me wrecks, it didn't screw up my practice, it didn't impact my life. Uh, it just didn't. The next three years of my drinking was alcoholic. I knew exactly every day when my first drink was going to be at, at 4.30. Walked out of my house, I walked out of the office, went to the 7-Eleven, got me a quart of beer, drove home, and drank my scotch and water. And uh, those years were not screwed up uh, in the sense of, of professionally. They were, my, my wife hated my guts, but she always did hate my guts from the time we got married. So, <laughs> and the drinking didn't have that much to do with that. The last year, the last year, yeah, last year my drinking was addictive. I drank a of whiskey a night. I told myself I wasn't an alcoholic because I never drank in my office. Now, each part of my story is told for a reason. I'll go back to it. Uh, first, for this part of, of where we are in this presentation, I took amphetamine for 12 years with no alcohol. Alcohol for 8 years with no amphetamine. Same sewer. There was an interesting, subtle difference. 
And I've treated, as I say, thousands of drug addicts, and I can tell you that, that there may be a rare exception, but it's rare. When I was in my drug period, if you, like for instance, when I was in the Army and they told me if I didn't quit taking amphetamine, they put me in Leavenworth, well, I quit. And what I like to say is once they explained it to me, I quit. Well, I could always quit if the gun was cocked and loaded and right in my face. I could always quit with the drugs. I couldn't stay quit, but I could quit with the alcohol. There was a time when I couldn't quit. The consequences made no difference. I could not quit. My power to sober alcohol is twofold. One is uh, I couldn't quit drinking. But the other is at least one, I couldn't make it work. I couldn't drink enough whiskey to get drunk. All it would do was stop the DTs. So, thing to learn here is the cross-sensitivity of medication and the disease which has been well defined. This disease is uh, chronic, progressive, fatal, and treatable. Uh, chronic, no known cure. Diabetes, same way. All the neuroscientists are trying to find a silver bullet to treat us. They're not going to do it. Those in recovery are not. They know they're not going to be able to do it because you can't put spirituality in a capsule. And the research today is real clear. The number one treatment for this disease is spiritual, and the number one place to deliver that spiritual message is in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's in the literature. The first big study that was done with that was done by Al Mooney at Willingway Hospital in concert with Beaumont Army Hospital. And they proved not only that that spiritual approach of AA uh, using the 12 steps ensure uh, a better recovery, but it actually went up by 10% if you had a sponsor, and it went up by 10% if you sponsored somebody. Interesting. Interesting. It takes a hell of a lot of work to get out of yourself like when you're like I am. You know, I mean, it takes a hell of a lot of work to get out of yourself when you're self-centered as I am. And what the book tells me, you are too, if you're bodily mentally different from your fellows. You may be auditing this presentation, but I doubt it. You know? <laughs> so they can't put the spirituality in a capsule, and they continue to try to work on finding multiple ways to help curtail compulsivity, and they are having some success by using drugs like Revia and Naltrexone and those drugs, but all they're doing, they're not working with an abstinent model, and AA is working with an abstinent model, and the only thing that works consistently for most alcoholics is an abstinent model, and we'll show exactly why that's true later on, and we'll go into some of the stuff that's been revealed in the last two or three or four months about moderation management. This is a progressive disease. There are two forms of the progressive nature of the disease. One is uh, what Dr. Jelnick described in the late 50s and early 60s when he said there was a seven and a half year mean average. If you've seen the Jelnick chart, and actually Jelnick didn't do that chart. It was done by a fellow named England named Max Glatt, and they were really very good friends, and Jelnick developed it, and Glatt was very happy that he did, but Glatt actually developed that chart. And, and, and Jelnick came to a different level. But in the Jelnick chart, it's a seven and a half year mean average of drinking until the individual crosses that invisible line. And then there's a three to five year period of time before the individual gets back to that level that they may have had at some time in their life. And you and I, who've been in recovery long enough, know we actually go beyond that level of where we work. We reach a different level because a spiritual level of necessity. But a seven and a half year mean average, and that is, that was subsequently going to be defined as adult alcoholism. It does not address adolescent alcoholism, which we'll look at. Yeah, those are, those are two separate diseases in their presentation. <coughs> They're the same disease because they involve alcohol and the inability to handle it. 
but the behavior patterns are different. Adult alcoholism, and we'll look at that in more detail. That was one form of the progressive nature of alcoholism. The other form is anecdotal and experiential. If I start drinking today, and those of you who have done a lot of 12-step work, and I certainly have, uh, I've, I've done a 12-step call on a man who got drunk after 42 years. I've done, I don't know how many of the people who got drunk with more than 30 years. I do two big book studies, one on Monday, Wednesday night for people who have been around the program for a while, and I do another one on Thursday night for newcomers. And uh, I quit counting about two or three years ago at 30, the number of people who came in to do that big book study who got drunk with more than 25 years of sobriety who had never read the book. And they were going to meetings to be held. Don't ever think for a minute that meetings aren't essential. They are probably one of the greatest assets in recovery. But I want you to hear me. They are also one of the greatest deterrents. Because if you think going to three meetings a week is going to get you sober and keep you sober without doing the rest of the drill, my experience is that didn't work. My experience, these people in that Wednesday night big book study. And some of them were my gurus. Because I spent ten years in this program and never opened the book. And I was devout drunk going to meetings to who laid the rail and I was a lethal weapon for God is what I was. I mean they said better drink a beer here he comes he's going to put your ass in treatment anyway. I'm serious. <laughs> I, I, I lived for three years I lived for ten years in this program on a three and a third step the first three and the third of the twelfth step and I got to tell you I helped a lot of people and I got crazier than a goat crazier than a goat Progressive nature, if I start drinking, you'll see almost almost a Steven Spielberg mental deterioration. Uh, it, it's incredible. The longer a person's been sober, the more obvious this is. The more obvious this is. Something continues to go on in us, even when we quit drinking. And there's a $50 million research study, and one of them has to do with the progressive nature of alcoholism. And we think it's in the aldehyde condensation products. How many of y'all have heard of THIQ? <coughs> THIQ. Well, I'll show you what the man it used to be taught all the time as the progressive measure of alcoholism. Well, that's not true. It's also taught as the compulsivity of drinking. Well, that's not true as best we know. But it probably does contain the piece that we'll find as to what is continuing to go on in the brain once we quit drinking. Fatal. This disease is 100% fatal. <coughs> If you consider suicides, homicides, trauma, as well as all the physical com components like cirrhosis, GI tract cancer, wet brain syndrome, hypertension, those kind of things. I make rounds at least once a month on the uh, trauma ward at the University of Louisville. My purpose in being there is to help the surgery residents understand about alcoholism and drug addiction. <coughs> at any one time, in that number one type of trauma center at the University of Louisville, uh, hospital, at least 95% of those trauma beds are occupied as a direct or indirect result of alcoholism or drug addiction. Treatable, this disease is eminently treatable. 90% success treating physicians, 70% treating the normal population if they're treated correctly. Operative word is correctly. The actual recovery rate based in the trenches with quote normal people, not physicians, is probably around 25%, maybe 30 Everybody says, well, that shows AA isn't working. Yeah, we're working. We're just getting people before they're ready to quit. And what happens with people who aren't ready to quit, it's real hard. I've worked my ass off trying to turn the key and get somebody ready to quit when they weren't ready to quit. 
It just almost never works. You know? Now, with physicians, we can do it because at least 99% of the physicians who come into our program aren't ready to quit. They come in at gunpoint. I say they're here to save their ass. They're not here to save their soul. We have a recovery rate after five years at 95%. It takes somewhere between the second and third year of holding someone's rapt attention. You know? before the miracle happens. But it, it, it happens in 95% of the cases because our program is absolutely rigid. Starting from the French structure, starting from day one for five years, we become benevolent dictators. We become benevolent dictators. I mean, we tell people work, yes. What's the percentage of EAP type Depends on how structured. The question is, what about EAP type programs? Depends on the structure of the EAP programs. I've seen very few, very few uh, uh, EAP programs that, that can that can structure themselves like we do. Even to the point of making people go to AA, that can be legally challenged. We let the board of licensure have all of the authority. We just sat over here with the white hats and said, "We don't have any authority. Don't want any authority. We just want to share our experience, strength, and hope." So I said, "Well, I don't want to do it." In fact, you hear the sabers rattling. You see what I'm saying? And EAPs can rarely do that. They don't have that kind of authority. We do. The consequences that are implicit are real. Now, putting in that structure, we determine what their diagnosis is, where they're going to be treated, whether it's outpatient, inpatient. When they come back, they go into therapy groups just for doctors. I've had people say, you're treating an elitist group? No. When I put them in the regular groups, they ate the group. There were people in Louisville calling me Dr. Brady for the first five years of my recovery. Well, they hadn't called me horse last time I had back, but I didn't call me Dr. Brady in my face, except for my sponsor. There is almost an implicit type of aversion or almost obsequiousness to doctors. We put them in regular groups, they ate the group. They said, come get them. So I put them all in there together. We were the first thing we ever did it. And it's a major, major piece of what happens to these people who don't. When we just sent them day eight, they walked in at one minute to eight, and they walked out at one minute after that. And they stayed in the trenches. We had a two-year contract, and that doctor can stand neck deep in the barn lot for two years if the payoff's worth it. Beautiful minds, huge global orientation, and stronger than you wrote. So we increased the, to five years and did the things I'm talking about, and the payoff has become real obvious. Okay. But our current success rate, and, and, and everyone screams about it in, uh, in AA, is not very good. But then again, we're getting a whole bunch of people in AA today who basically are being sent here who don't want to come, and the structure's not behind to keep them there. I'm not fussing about whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's what happens. This disease is a biopsychosocial disease. There's a biological, psychological, and a societal component. And it is absolutely necessary to look at all those as far as the etiology or as far as what makes an impact on an individual who is bodily and mentally different. Let's look at the societal events. We live in a society which not only condones uh, drinking, it promotes it. This presentation is not against alcohol. The Jews call alcohol the gift of God that gladdens the hearts of men. And if you know your big book, you know that we don't fuss against alcohol. Because we'll just irritate some people. But the bottom line is, is that we live in a society which promotes it. Advertising is clear. Look at the beer advertising. Look at the whiskey advertising. Look at the whole deal. And if you don't think that has an impact, I can tell you it does. 
Just look at it. If you didn't, they wouldn't be doing it, would you? Right? I mean, here's, the, here's these three guys coming down this gangplank. It's three in the morning. It's pitch black. They got on their camo outfit. Down at the bottom of this, of this gangplank is a John boat. There are all kinds of decoys, shotguns, six-pack of beer sitting in there. Back here is chauvinistic commercial. These three beautiful women waving goodbye like this. They're too dumb to talk. They're just beautiful. They're just waving goodbye. <laughs> and, and it says, it don't get no better than this. Well, every woman says, I hate that commercial. Every man says, My wife looked at that commercial. She says, the dumbest commercial I've ever seen. I said, yeah, when I hunted, I didn't drink. When I drank, I didn't hunt. She said, no, if you think I'm going to stand there at 3 in the morning, why did you pass Here's this gorgeous 25-year-old gal with her arm around this gorgeous 25-year-old gal. They're moving away from the from the camera. It's a great commercial. In her hand is a cold black bottle of Cavazier. It says, are they going to have fun tonight? And this gorgeous woman, a 40-story penthouse apartment, city twinkles below her, it's twilight, long black gown, long neck, glass, bubbles in the glass, says for the woman who can have everything. See the seduction? The one that's most seductive shows these 25 or 30 gorgeous young people in their 20s. Tan, beautiful, going out to this burlap mound, take the burlap off, seaplane, go up to land in this azure lagoon in the Bahamas, somewhere like that. The guys all come out with a sit with a case of beer on their shoulders that night. One of these gorgeous young women is behind this sheet screen with a fire behind her, and you can watch every undulation of her body. And over and around in the dark, where you can't see exactly what they're doing, you've got these couples and you can only imagine what they're doing over the Next day it shows this gal walking in this lagoon with a six pack of beer in her hand, seaplane, I mean with a beer bottle in her hand, seaplanes behind her, says they don't ever have to go back. So what's the deal? Life is good, but what makes it better? Alcohol. Alcohol. Peer pressure. Between 1982 and 1987 in the Jefferson County School System, I talked to every kid between first grade and high school. I talked to something like 50,000 children during that period of time. Uh, the sixth and seventh grade kids were the one I got along best with, and my wife says it was because of my arrest and emotional development. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I tell you, when we start drinking and start drugging, we quit growing, don't we? I came in at 41, and I was actually about 15. I didn't start really drugging until I was 22, but because of my family of origin, I didn't grow up very well in, the fa- in my family of origin, so I was functioning at an emotional level of about 15. You throw dope on top of that, marijuana, and I mean, you really got a quagmire. I've treated, I've had doctors treated who were great technicians, but if they were heavy dope smokers, they were emotional adolescents. Emotional adolescents. So this period, when I came back, they called me one day to see this young gal who was about 13, 12, who has been snorting coke. And I came in there, and, and she said, she asked to see me. And I came in, she was sitting there, and she said, Dr. Brady, she said, they all asked me where I got it. And I said, yeah, why did you do it? She said, because Sarah Jane, one of her classmates who brought her the dope, brought her the cocaine, said, if you don't do this, you'll be all these four-letter words that we don't say, we don't want to be called. She said, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. I came back from treatment in 1978. I was on the board of directors of the club I belonged at. I didn't go back over to the board of directors meeting for almost five months. Then one night I went. 
didn't go to the open bar, just went on back. As I walked through the, the club, this young man came over and had a martini, and he chanted, said, you're Burns Brady. I said, yeah, and he said, have this martini and sit and talk with me. And I said, well, I'll be glad to talk with you, but I can't have the martini. He said, well, I've heard about you. You can have the martini. I said, no, I really can't. He said, why? I said, I'm an alcoholic. He went, congratulations. You know, he's going to help you. <laughs> but, but the take-home message is, did I want that drink? Did I want that drink? Yeah, why did I want that drink? I'm real clear why. I didn't want to be different from. I didn't want to be excluded. I didn't want to be rejected. I wanted to be a part of. And that was all I knew early in recovery, was that old life of mine. One of two things you got to do stay sober, don't drink. To change everything else you're doing. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely right. That's exactly what it is. That's societal. Now, we also, what do we say about this in NAA? Change playmates, playpens, and playthings. Playmates, playpens, and playthings. I'm dead serious. When you talk about changing everything you're doing, very rarely will anyone be able to successfully stay in the same environment that they drank in. And when I get through, you'll understand why the brain chemistry is one of the main reasons that can't be done. Because those emotional responses are not just a whimsical type thing. Now, stay with me here, because this gets pretty tricky. When I'm talking to mental health people, they get really threatened with this. Uh, psychological. Alcoholic personality, there's no such thing. If you run MMPIs on us or, or uh, emotional testing, uh, you'll never find a normal one, but you won't find the one that's consistent. Because we are bodily and mentally different. And you'll see all sorts of things I'll talk to you about in a minute. Mental illness, there's no more mental illness in the alcoholic population. There is a normal population. We're talking about schizophrenia, bipolar disease, and psychotic depression. Some of the latest studies are indicating that there may be a higher instance of bipolar disease uh, with, it, with it being about 2% in the normal population, 2% in the alcoholic population, 1% in the normal population. That remains to be seen. Depends on who's doing the study and how well they've done it. I'm not convinced that there is more bipolar disease. Now, mental health people have gotten into so-called bipolar 2, which is a very subtle form of bipolar disease, but I would venture to say that many of you in this room have been diagnosed as bipolar. I would also say that there's probably not more than 1 to 2% maximum in this room who are bipolar. Because we sure as hell act and look bipolar when we're drinking. <laughs> and we sure as hell act and look bipolar when we, for the first six months to two or three years after we do quit drinking. I mean, you know, boo and, and shinny up a flagpole, you know, those kinds of things. Now here's the hooker. Here is the hooker. We know today that probably conservatively 90% of alcoholics, maybe as high as 100%, have significant affective disorder. And this is before we drink, it continues when we drink, and it will be there after we quit drinking. Bill Wilson had a huge depression prior to stopping drinking. He had huge depression after he quit drinking. He got accused of everything from not working the program to even relapse, and the fact was it was a part of Bill Wilson. Affective disorders are divided into anxiety and depression. And anxiety is divided into obsessive compulsive disorder. I mean, how many times today did you go check and see if your house was locked or your room was locked when you left it? How many times did you check on your car to see it's still there today? Or you name it. How many times did you, you know, whatever. 
How many times did you make sure that you paid the bill when you walked out of the restaurant? How many times did you decide how many toes you got? Hell, I don't know, whatever it may have been. Obsessive <laughs> compulsive disorder, panic disorder, panic disorder, uh, agoraphobic disorders, which are sociophobic disorders, and finally post traumatic stress disorders. Now, this is not a dual diagnosis. This is alcoholism that includes these deals. That includes these deals. You know what it is to get anxious. You know what it is to feel like you're flying apart. For us in AA especially, we have to keep that real simple and say the answer is spiritual. I may not even need to know what that is. And certainly for at least three years to begin to look for this secondary diagnosis is an exercise in futility. We in addiction medicine say we don't even make a dual diagnosis or even entertain one for two years short of a psychotic break. Now you're not going to hear that in a lot of mental health people, but you're going to hear it in the field of addiction medicine. Because when we look at the post-acute recovery syndrome, we got stress management and simple problem solving. Those are living skills. Stress management. And that's where we at a red light, normal people, red turns green, somebody honks, they drive off. We're sitting there, it turns green, somebody honks, we come and get out, try to slap the hell out of them. <laughs> or we give them the finger. Or we spend the, or we spend the next six months feeling like a wimp because we didn't get out and tell them what we thought. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly what it, what it, what we are with bodily mentally different. None of those things do we entertain. And if you, if you're with me and I'm, you're looking at depression, you say, oh my goodness, what about Prozac, Dilaf, Paxil, all those things. And studies done by Mark Gold at, in Miami Brain Institute and Mark Shuckett at Scripps Institute in La Jolla, they have found that anxiety and depression disorder 60% will clear within the first four to six weeks just getting off the drug. 60%. Another 32% will clear within a year teaching them a new way to live. That means 8% will in all probability need long-term medication. And people in AA don't have the right to make that decision. And we've been doing it, and one of the ways I can place on both sides of the fence, it's time for people in AA to quit practicing medicine, and it's time for those of us in medicine to teach doctors how to do it better. But at the same time, for God, I remember when I got gave a talk about two years sober, and I was up there, and I was absolutely tearing the heart out of benzodiazepines. Who in the hell knows why I was doing that? But I was sitting there just really tearing it up. And I came home, and which is right, benzodiazepines are a kiss of death in most alcoholics and any alcoholic. And certainly are not the drug of choice in panic disorders or anything else. They're not the drug of choice for any alcoholic. But I sat there and made that statement or something like that, and then about two or three days later or a week later, I called my doctor in Louisville, and he said, what the hell are you doing? I knew this guy. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you said benzodiazepines were bad for alcoholics. I got a patient on. He went home and took them, or quit taking them, because Dr. Brady said they were bad, and he had convulsions. And that, we're doing it in AA all the time. Don't change your medicine. You say, none of us are guilty. Well, I'm glad you're not, but it happens, and you know it happens. We're telling bipolar people to get off of certain medicines. We're telling schizophrenics to get off of certain medicines. We're even telling some people we won't sponsor them if they're on these medicines. I sponsor about four schizophrenics and two or three genuine bipolars. And their doctors sent them to me so they wouldn't get hurt in AA. So they wouldn't get hurt in AA. And this is a real critical time for us to look at ourselves. 
Yeah, the doctors are a piece of shit sometimes. We have to go out there and deal with them. I have to deal with them, I guarantee you. Sometimes I get so mad that I think I'm going to bust a gut when I'm doing psychiatric grand rounds or something like that at UL or UK. And I get some of those people who are not very bright, or certainly not very knowledgeable, but the only exceeds their ignorance is their arrogance, and they're sitting up there talking to me sometimes about benzodiazepine. And uh, fortunately, with enough recovery, I don't use any four-letter words. I just stick my tongue out at them for a <laughs> That'll show them. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, depression is an interesting thing. The last five years that I was in practice, I guess I saw every alcoholic in Louisville who wanted to, to not let a doctor hurt them. And number one uh, presenting complaint was depression all the way from the first two or three weeks to 30 and 40 years. Uh, first thing that we always do is take a good family history. There are two forms of depression, endogenous and exogenous depression. And endogenous depression basically are people who have brain chemistry abnormalities that they inherited from their mothers or daddy or great-grandparents. If you do a good family history, you find a long series of depressions in a family, then these people probably have that kind of deal. You have to watch them real closely. I don't still believe in putting these people on medication right the first pop out of the box. I think it gives the alcoholic the idea that it's always better living through chemistry. And we have to be real careful, but we do need to watch these people because they're at greater risk for suicide. And we know the instance of suicide is 19 to 22% higher in the alcoholic population than it is in the normal population. The final thing about the uh, anxiety disorders I want to talk about is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I used to poo-poo that when I was in medicine. Since I had my heart attack in 94, I don't poo-poo it anymore. They rolled me in there and I was in, I was up to my butt in trouble. They filled me full of morphine, which made it kind of an existential experience. I mean, it really did. And it confused my heart, resolved the clot. I went into ventricular fibrillation. They put the, 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 the pads on me. And they threw me up there, and I'm sitting there looking around, you know, and, and I came down, I did it again, they popped me again, I went up and down. This is a real spiritual experience. I mean, <laughs> sure it really is. And, uh, and I, didn't, I didn't think, you know, I, I thought, God, this is neat. This is just like they do on ER and all that. <laughs> and I, I want you to know, I went home, and after a cardiac rehab and whatnot, it didn't happen overnight, but it, it's still... Today I cannot watch ER. I just found that if I'm sitting there watching ER and they wheel somebody in that has that same clinical picture I have, my pulse goes up, I start sweating, and I mean, tell you, I feel like I'm just going to get underneath the bed. I mean, it is very, very real. And one of the reasons this is important in recovering individuals is we know that conservatively, 50% of males and females are abused in alcoholic homes. These are the people who are sexually abused. These are the people who are going to get into AA more readily than other people. Not because they're sexually abused, because they come out of that genetic pool. We have found that men can stay sober if you don't deal with the PTSD secondary to sexual addiction. They won't stay sober forever. They're meaner than hell, and, they, and you, you catch a guy who's really angry at about two or three years of recovery, then you have to start looking for sexual abuse in the inventory. Respond to them, take them back, let them go through the four column inventory and look at their resentments and see what's there, or ask them to get some help. But women just generally don't stay sober, period. If they don't deal with it, with the PTSD, secondary sexual abuse, shot. And I, I learned this, it's not necessarily that much in the literature, but I learned it with our women and men in the, in the homeless shelter. 
I've watched them, and we begin to rewrite some of the books on what we're going to find, and the women just won't stay sober. The depression is almost overwhelming in addition to the PTSD. And it may come out sideways, but that's exactly what we see. ADD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Our research today tells us that somewhere between 90 and 100% of all adult males have a form of ADHD if they're alcoholic. My home group is a men's meeting on Tuesday night. I sit in there with about 60 men every Tuesday night watching ADHDs in action. And I'm sitting there doing it too, you know. And only about 40% of women have it. And you can, you can always tell a woman who's got it. She acts like a man. She's got the same kind of shit that we're all there. But all women don't have it. But the men will have it. It's real classical. It is real classical. History of ADHD. Starts at birth. Dopamine deficiency, which is a form of a neurotransmitter. Burns out at the end of adolescence. Was treated by Ritalin. That was the old story. Current story is it starts at birth, does not burn out at the end of adolescence, goes on into adulthood in a form of what we call adult ADHD, which is now called residual type. And uh, the treatment can be multiple drugs, but it's certainly not Ritalin because Ritalin is a cheap man's uh, amphetamine or cocaine, and we run into a real problem of addiction if we're treating adults with alcoholism with this drug. The question always comes up, what if you have a child who has it? Uh, do you treat them? Uh, our research shows that if the gene pool is there, they have ADHD and it's well diagnosed appropriately, we still have to treat them. But the instance of, of, uh, of uh, drug addiction and alcoholism is higher in those kids. Uh, that means education is absolutely, absolutely indicated in these kids as soon as possible as they come from that gene pool. Yes. What if it goes untreated? The ADHD. The question is, what if the ADHD doesn't, if it goes untreated? I consider that malpractice. Because if you take a kid who truly has a legitimate, you're talking about a child now, I'm talking It depends on the severity. My experience is that at some point in time, these people who either relapse or will become so uncomfortable that they have to be treated. Now, there are other forms of treatment. We don't have to use Ritalin. There's a lecture I give, Fission Syndrome, and those included primarily have to do with ADHD. And it really is divided into about four different groups, and only one of them will respond to stimulus. Others have to respond to some sort of mood stabilizer, such as Prozac, Zoloft, or Paxil, or one of the other drugs like lithium, or, or Depakote, or Tegretol, or uh, Neurontin, one of the anti-seizure drugs, and those are all safe drugs. I mean, those are all safe drugs for the addict. I'm not telling you that it won't impair, to some degree, their, their pleasure systems, but I'm telling you they won't relapse on those drugs. And if that diagnosis is made, I've had two doctors, I've had a number of doctors, that we had to put on some of the other medications, the safe ones I'm talking about, and they were given the drill that was not in lieu of their meetings and their spirituality and their 12 steps, but they needed that. We've had two doctors whose drugs of choice were amphetamine. One of them made his own amphetamine. And, I mean, we followed them for five years with every conceivable mechanism to treat, and they really were impaired in their ability to practice medicine. One was a psychiatrist, he also had narcolepsy and kept going to sleep 
listen to his patients. No, I mean, cute, but that's exactly what happened. The other was a psychiatrist, female, who was, I mean, she was the most devoted AA member I've ever seen. She reminded me of me. She was so anal retentive. She would just go to seven or eight meetings a week and just, I mean, just, just work the book till your little fingers were bloody. She was miserable. And finally, and we tried everything. Finally, at the end of five years, we put her on a regimen of putting her on amphetamine. She got a pill every day. I mean, that, I mean, she had to get her pill from somebody else. You held the medicine. She got it from me. She saw her psychiatrist twice a week. She saw her prescribing doctor and neuro, neuropharmacologist. She saw or the psychopharmacologist. She saw them once a week. She met with her sponsor every day and called me every week. And she did fine. And she's still doing fine. She's under, I mean, she's got a safety net so tight under her that but we had to do it. It was a judgment call. And I prayed about that. So I, I mean, I just prayed, prayed, prayed. But it didn't, I thought, my God, we can't do this. We're just my we'll shooter. Well, with the kind of system we set up, this has been five years ago, it's still working. That's a rare story. And most people with ADHD adult form, which is compulsivity, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. You know, that's what you'll see. Uh, if they need medicine at all, like I don't take medicine for mine. I have pretty severe ADHD. I can't read for longer than 10 or 15 minutes at a time. Without taking a 15 minute break, I listen to lots of tapes because auditorily I'm okay. Visually, I cannot. Uh, but I've learned other methods to do it. Because the medicines, all these medicines that we have to do that with, they try on me. They don't work. I mean, I I can't even drink water without having a problem. <laughs> and I'm not sure I ever could, but certainly all the stuff I did to myself, drinking and drugging, really did mess me up. Tony? I'm sorry, what? Diet, diet-free, diet-free diet, the chemical-free diet. Well... I'm a, I'm a strong proponent of using a proper diet in recovering addicts and alcoholics, but I don't think that it by itself, unless you cut out sugar, you put people on low sugar diet with multiple small feedings per day and put them in there with some tryptophan, and you can probably have a halfway decent response as long as you make sure they go to a meeting four or five times a week as long as they work their steps. And I've got to be sure everybody hears that. But yeah, we do use diet along that way because sugar is a, is a real problem. Yes? Well, I think they need to be studied by someone. I can give you a generic answer. But let me let me preface it by saying that child needs to be evaluated by top quality evaluators who really do know that whole distance efficient spectrum or that stimulants are not necessarily the drug of choice that we used to like we used to think stimulants were drug of choice to the point that we had a kid that was ADHD and we put that kid on Ritalin and they didn't get better than we said they didn't have ADHD. Oh, wow. I mean that I mean that's exactly fifteen, twenty years ago. So the child needs to be evaluated by someone who knows the whole disinhibition spectrum differential diagnosis and knows the different medications. So for me to say to you which medicine would be best, I couldn't do that because I'm not evaluating the child. 
But if I were evaluating a child, then I would go do an in-depth family history, not just about alcoholism, but looking at patterns of behaviors in the relatives and what they did to deal with those patterns of behaviors and first cousins and the whole deal to determine if this could be a mood disorder that is also part of the disinhibition spectrum, which looks like ADHD and is actually a part of ADHD, as best we know. But that drug of choice would not be Ritalin or stimulant. It would be an entirely different drug. So for, I can't answer you about the child or the, or the hypothetical that you gave me. I can just say they need to be in the hands of a real pro who knows the options. Does that answer your question? You identified a couple of characteristics. You said compulsivity, hyperactivity, and what was the Impulsivity. Right, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is it common practice um, to have a child on Ritalin five days a week, just turning school, um, and you know, they're not? I mean, is it common practice that they're treated? just during school hours. Well, the question is, is it common practice to have a child on Ritalin just during the school hours and not the rest of the time? No, it's not common, but I've seen it. Mm -hmm. And if the doctor's knowledgeable, that may be the work, that may be the working dose. Yes? Are you saying 100% of the people become alcoholics that have this or No. What I'm saying is if a child is, is part of a gene pool where there's already alcoholism and they're given Ritalin, there's a higher instance of these kids who will develop alcoholism than in the normal population. But not 100%, absolutely not. Yes? Do you ever recommend Alateen to some of these kids? It's all step program, part of alcoholism? Well, because I haven't been Alateen for 10 years and I've seen the kids change. Yes, yes, and I agree with you. I agree with you. Now, if, if someone for instance, if they had tried to treat me in my home didn't, and, and someone didn't know that to go back to my grandfather, they would never have looked at me and my differential. That's why I'm saying that knowledgeable people, I recommend it. I, re I don't do the evaluations on these children, and I don't do the treatment, I don't do the prescribing, I do the teaching. But obviously what I try to teach to the professionals who are doing it is if they have a high-risk gene pool, try to get everybody in AA and Al-9 and Alateen. Absolutely. Good point. Yes. What is the treatment protocol for someone who does have bipolar disorder and alcoholism? I mean, how do you know what symptoms come from which one? The question is, how do you know how to treat a bipolar who's an alcoholic? Um, it's it's not really tough, but it's almost it's almost like an experiment. You look at the individual who is showing you the symptoms, and it should be. Preferably an addiction psychiatrist, a psychiatrist who is an addiction specialist and preferably in recovery. And we, we do have those people, interestingly enough. And if they do that, then they know, know everything about this disease so that they make the call and, I'm, and, and let's assume that the diagnosis is a valid diagnosis. Then you start off with a drug which seems to be the best drug for their bipolar problem. Lithium is still the gold standard. And if it doesn't work because of its side effects, then you move to one of the mood stabilizers like Depakote or Neurontin or Tegretone. Those are anti-seizure medicines. And you may throw in one of the SSRI drugs, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, or Lubox, or something, or one of those. Yeah, that's exactly right. But there's, I wish there were a cookbook. You open to page four, and that's what it is. You just say, that ain't the way it is. 
and you keep hammering AA, 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 family involvement, family involvement. Alan, just hammer and hammer. And I'm sure in this room, I just want to be sure for those people who have maybe had some prejudice against the disease and all the stuff we know today, take it for granted that the number one thing is to get these people in a 12-step program. This is a this is a necessary adjunct to get the people in the twelve step program. Yes. Question: Do you think that uh, or have you ever recommended uh, genograms for for alcoholics? You know, to to go back and see the family characteristics. The question is, do I recommend genograms for alcoholics? No, but the therapists I send them to generally do. They get really in depth with this. Uh, again, remember, I'm an educator. I didn't do the clinical stuff, so I do recommend that they go back and look at this. But in AA, they generally get a chance to look at it because it's in their fourth step. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Yeah, I understand. But if, if you're knowledgeable, when I do a fifth step with somebody, I basically dance them to a genogram. It comes out through the fourth step, but I mean, I know what I'm looking for and I will point out because when I get to the sixth and seventh or even get to the fourth column of the, of, of the fourth step, and what I'm basically doing is having them look at what they're looking at. But the therapist, as you well know, really knowledgeable people dealing with alcoholism, if they get into therapy, are going to do genograms. <laughs> now, this is important. There was a researcher, not that this other one, but there's a researcher in, uh, who teamed with Stanley Gettlow in the middle 70s. Her name was Lynn Henneke. Lynn Henneke is a clinical psychologist. And after they saved about 200 alcoholics, she came back and told Dr. Gettler, she said, I found that every alcoholic has a poor identification with a parent of the same sex. And Gettler, who thinks Freud is a cuss word, <laughs> I have to agree with him, basically. That's irrelevant. But he thinks Freud, he went back to 1953, reviewed all of his charts, and presented this paper at a major conference called CCAD in 1978. And he said, I'm telling you people, every alcoholic has a poor identification with a parent of the same sex. They will almost always present pissed off at the parent of the opposite sex. But they have a poor identification with a parent of the same sex. And I'm sitting in that audience for about one year of sobriety. I thought, man, my daddy's one of the neatest people I've ever known. I didn't have a problem with my daddy. My daddy was one of the neatest people I've ever known. And I didn't have a problem with it. So I went up to Dr. Gettler after it's over, and I said, please help me. I, I don't understand. My daddy and I are fine. He said, tell me your story. Well, I was born very poor. My daddy always had two jobs, sometimes three. He'd go to work in the morning before I got up. He'd come home at night after I went to bed. I didn't see my daddy except on Sunday when we went to church for almost the first 10 years of my life because we couldn't afford to take vacation. My mother raised me, and almost all of my interpersonal skills are female. I'm a nurturer, and one of the best family docs I ever did. The only ones better were females, because most of my skills are female. But my male skills came out of dirty books and men's locker rooms. <laughs> and that gets real crazy. It's real crazy. So this poor identification, I remember when I, went, I was four years old, Dad took me to the first football game. We walked in to halftime, and I went over to, uh, and sat down on the commode. And Dad came and said, what are you doing? Everything? I said, I'm peeing. He said, well, why don't you use that and point it to the latrine? I've never seen a latrine. You took me to public restroom. My mom, she took me to the women's restroom. He said, well, I'm going to have to start taking you more football games. <laughs> Take-home messages. Where do we learn our coping skills? 
What do we learn? Big brothers and big sisters. We put an adult male with a male child, an adult female with a female child, and that female and male child emulates that parent of the same sex or that role model individual. What do we do when someone comes into AA? You get a sponsor. You get a male sponsor. You don't get a female sponsor. We think that's because you all get in bed together. Well, that's part of it. But the big deal is she can't teach you about being a man. He can. She, you need to learn how to be a woman. That's exactly a responsible adult. Most, most alcoholics coming into AA have absolutely destroyed coping skill and it started before they were drinking and got into AA. It started before they were drinking and got into AA. And we have my first sponsor for 10 years never had me read the book, but he taught me how to go borrow money. He taught me how to buy a car. I didn't know how to do those things. I mean, I knew I was able to buy a car until I became a doctor. Then I didn't have to worry about buying a car. I just called them and told them to deliver it. And I signed whatever they put in the front of me. Because hell, I was a doctor. I had money. I didn't even know how to ask about interest rates. Yes. What years of your life do you most, or most, the question is, what years of your life you most learned your coping skills? Well, if you will recall, Freud used to say, give me a, Freud used to say it was in the first six years of life. Uh, the Germans, the, 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 the Nazi Germans said, if you give me that kid for six years, I'll have him for the rest of his life. AA has proved we can continue to learn coping skills even as 16, 70 year old adults. Because that's exactly what we do. In a, in a general pattern, we would hope that those coping skills are learned by the time someone leaves home, which would be 18, generally speaking. But the most impressionable years is generally between year one and year six. I mean, that's when you indelibly mark the individual. Now, you can talk to behaviors, they may not necessarily agree with that. But AE was felt that it was... One of the criticisms of AA back in the early years was that you couldn't teach an old dog new tricks, but you sure as hell can. And we've proved conclusively that you can. Okay, any questions? Okay. Now let's look at the biological. We're looking at the genetics and the biochemistry. The most compelling evidence that we have today that this is a disease continues to be the genetic evidence. Between 1980 and 1987, there were 300 studies and 700 papers written irrefutably stating that the number one most predefining condition of whether a person will be an alcoholic is do they have alcoholic kinfolks. Studies done on the 11th chromosome uh, have not been documented enough for me to even go over it. The adoption studies between 1935 and 1950 in three different Scandinavian countries, 8,000 adoptees, 500 concordant twin studies, if you have a primary relative that's an alcoholic, chances of that child being an alcoholic are four times greater, whether that child raised in that home or not. <laughs> David Owens in St. Louis says if one parent's an alcoholic, the chances of the child being an alcoholic are 45%. Both parents are alcoholic, the chances are 94%, whether that child's raised in that home or not. C. Robert Clonger in St. Louis defined two forms of genetic alcoholism. One was milieu limited or type 1. That's adult form. Seven and a half year mean average. Characteristics is these people lose the ability to drink 
are to control the drinking, pour the whiskey at night, but they will stay societally responsible until they can no longer stay societally responsible. Treatment for these outpatient, inpatient, straight into AA, adult form. Highly heritable, male dominance seen in the first 15 years of life. Four times more frequently in female offspring of male, of female alcoholics, nine times more frequently seen in male offspring of male alcoholics. Profile, these kids don't lose the ability to control the amount they drink or grub. But when they do drink or grub, they become little animals. They become little sociopaths. They steal, they kill. In the healing place, the profile on the men that we have treated down there, and we're talking about adults, is that they were all antisocial personality disorders. No, they're not. We get them sober, and there's about a 1 to 2% that are. The rest of them were type 2 highly heritable alcoholics. They started drinking when they were less than 10, certainly less than 15. Most of them were end up in prison or certainly in, in uh, truancy schools and those kind of things. Highly different profiles. These kids literally become alcoholic from the first drink. From the first drink. Both of my kids were alcoholic before, by the time they were 12. Now, I didn't live at home with them. My wife kept me from them, but they were alcoholic by the time they were 12. These kids explode. They literally explode. Blood platelets. If I cut my hand, it takes a number of steps to clot the blood. Uh, one of those steps involves uh, these so-called second messengers, which are enzymes. <coughs> we take the blood platelet of an alcoholic, subject it to alcohol. These three systems will be screwed up. We take the blood platelet and subject it to alcohol in the offspring that's ever been exposed to alcohol, same screw-up in a statistically significant number of patients. Now, the blood platelet is like a white cell or a red cell for all practical purposes, that's all you need to know. The reason I put this in is because it gives us some indication of the genetics. This actually is a perfect screening test. It's not available, probably never will be, because we haven't, don't know how to deal with the ethics. It's only been known for about 10 years. It'll take at least 30 to 50 years to make sure this is a 100% accurate test. But the fact is, right now, it almost certainly is. And we, what it tells us is that if you have a uh, primary relative in your family that's alcoholic, the chances are that you have a higher chance of being that than people who do not. In the 19, early 1980s, uh, uh, Mark uh, Shuckett at, at, uh, at La Jolla, Scripps Institute, took about 200 kids and he was, he was going to study how drunk he had to get them, and, he, and what he did is he had, had a brainwave on them, and he was getting, going to get them drunk, and when they got drunk, he wants to know how much, if they tell them three beeps and boots, he go beep, boop, 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 and he got them just drunk as hell, and they could still tell the difference in the beeps and the boots, that wasn't in trouble. What happened is that 10% of those kids lost their P300 weight, that's a brainwave, the P300 and low alpha, low alpha, low amplitude alpha waves are the brain waves that have to do with the cognitive ability to process stress. These kids lost their P300 weight. He went to that 10% and interviewed them, and all of them had a primary relative that was alcoholic. He then got a second group of 200, brought them in, did their family history first, did the same thing, 10%, opened up their family history, same deal. Then he went back and got the original 200, brought them in, said, we're going to do this thing again. And when they got started, he gave them a glass of 7-Up lift with alcohol. They drank the 7-Up and smelled the alcohol, and their P300 disappeared. This is called euphoric recall. It means the first craving does not start with the drink. It starts with the thought 
of a dream. The thought of a dream. Playmates, play pens, play thing. The thought of the drink. Change playmates, playpens, and playthings. Important piece of information. In, 19, in 1954, there was a brilliant researcher at the University of Kentucky. He had a rat in a cage. He had a probe in the rat's brain. He didn't know where it was, but you remember that ventral tegmental area I showed y'all earlier? That's exactly where it was. This rat was in there probing for whatever the rat would probe for, and he would stimulate the rat's brain, and the rat would stop. He quit, and the rat would go off, he'd pop him, he'd go back. Quit, he got me, popping me, go back. And he just kept popping that rat's brain, the rat died, died in respiratory arrest. <coughs> Researcher said, I wondered, this looks like drug overdoses, is there anything I can do with it? Could do anything with it till the middle 70s when we radioactive tag morphine. Put it into the human, got her count the brain, and found the morphine went to receptor sites in the brain. Conclusion was if the brain has receptor sites for morphine, then it must make its own morphine because you don't have boat docks without boats. Okay? Now, that research finally culminated in the middle 70s when we were able to find that there are three major compounds that are different in the alcoholic brain and in the normal brain. One is the brain's own morphine, which is beta endorphin. We know that alcoholics are deficient in beta-endorphin. We know that their offspring in a statistically significant number of cases deficient in beta-endorphin. Enkephalin's another opiate in the brain, much like endorphins. Alcoholics deficient in methionine enkephalin. So we proved that the alcoholic and the offspring statistically are deficient in beta-endorphin and methionine enkephalin. This is important. If you ask an alcoholic, why do you drink? Everyone else will say we drink because we like the way it makes us feel. Some will say we drink because we like the taste. Every one of us will say we drink because we like the way it makes us feel. So the question is, what do we feel like before we drink? What do we feel like before we drink? We feel irritable, restless, and discontented before we drink. Right? And one of the main reasons we feel irritable, restless, and discontented is we're playing, as I told you, two quarts low. <laughs> These are the major feel-good compounds in the brain. TKE at the University of Indiana, working in one of the most incredibly brilliant studies, he had a bunch of rats over here in a darkened cage. He had a bunch of rats, a lighted cage over here. He had probes in these rats' brains. And 10% of these rats went over to the lighted cage. 90% stayed in the darkened cage. He called these risk-taking rats. He called these non-risk-taking rats. The dopamine and serotonin in these rats is normal. These rats won't drink. These rats over here, if you give them alcohol, they'll drink. Even water, they'll drink it. And when their dopamine and serotonin levels is not as much, and when they drink, it goes back to normal. Now, if he bred these rats, he got himself an alcoholic rat. This rat looking for a bar, looking for a fight, looking for sex. <laughs> <laughs> this is an alcoholic rat. This is an alcoholic rat. And this rat had virtually no dopamine serotonin, and let, they want alcohol. And when they drink, not only do they go back home, they completely off page. The paradigm, rat sitting in a cage. There's a light blinking, Pavlovian. The rat hits the lever. Down comes the alcohol, the rat drinks the alcohol, gets drunk, passes out. <laughs> Finally, here's the lights up there, get ready to put run water in. The rat drinks the water, dopamine serotonin level up page, and he passes out for two weeks. Then he realizes they screwed me. <laughs> you with me? Yeah. The brain chemistry changed at this rat thinking it was going to get alcohol for two weeks. 
Rats don't respond to color, pottery rules, nothing. They respond to does it feel good or doesn't it feel good and what can I expect to get when it gets here. So now we've looked at three major compounds. Uh, methionine and kaplan, beta endorphin, serotonin, and dopamine. No, adrenaline wasn't a player. You know the noise that most people hear in this world is, uh, you know the noise I hear? And you hear, ah, just like that, all the time. You hear the word, just like this. And when we drink, first time I knew this was the first amphetamine I took, and it was just like somebody had stopped the noise. Don't ever doubt why we drink. We drink to stop the noise. We drink to stop the noise. Yes. Yes, sir. I was wondering, in the medical field, I know that some scientists or whatever have done tests on alcoholics that have used some kind of chemical to be blockages in the brain. My question is, when they put those blockages for we use the drug or the alcohol, does that stop the phenomenon crazy? Does that continue for that alcoholic function normally without having the Question is, in medical science said that we have drugs that can stop craving. Yeah, we do have drugs that can stop craving, but we don't have any drugs that will stop drinking. With it, it will stop the craving. Eventually, that will come back. And this is really important to understand that there is no drug today that will stop the craving. There just isn't a drug. It will, it will lower the necessity. They did this in animals. And they, this was done by Bobocelli in Pennsylvania eight years ago. And they did it with rats using naltrexone, which is a whole different deal. It was so effective in cutting down the amount that the rats ran. It wouldn't stop them from drinking, but in cutting down the amount they drank. They ran about a seven-center group in the country to see if it worked at humans. Put it on the market today called Revia. And most treatment centers, a lot of them will give Revia. But they're not working on an abstinent model. They're working on saying if we decrease the amount the individual drinks, then we can have harm reduction. And we're not working on an abstinent model. See what I'm saying? This is entirely different. Now, don't get me wrong. I've seen some people, so-called chronics, that I've used this in. But I don't use it routinely on people from, the, from day one. The reason why I ask you that is because I know it, right? I remember the name of the medicine, but it used to block it to the brain. Mm -hmm. for, for heroin, is what it was. And it really didn't work. Right, well, that's, that's the same drug, only they use it for heroin. <laughs> yes. I was diagnosed with high anxiety, but not a cancer disorder. And my doctor told me I'm married, though. And here's something to do with. Uh, well, all the drugs, and that, that was part of the lecture that I skipped because of the time, but all the drugs basically work on blocking reuptakes or doing certain things with these chemicals we're looking at, the so-called neurotransmitters, and serotonin works similar to that, only it works a little different. And it's a very technical thing. I do know it, but it does it does function to block the reuptake to some degree of both serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline at the so-called infranuclear level. But that's what it's trying to do, is to re-regulate the brain chemistry. And uh, yeah, 
and the main thing is that what we're trying to do with these drugs is to intervene if we think it's necessary with a major mood disorder, but to get those people off of those drugs as quickly as possible if we can. It's to try to get through that first two to three years that are very, very dramatic because that instance of relapse occurs about 75% in the first year. And it's a real tricky period of time. AA will work better than anything else by, by spirituality. It's a tricky period of time. If anybody has to be on those drugs, what we're trying to do is get them off of them. I, by as soon as we can, I'm talking about three or six months max. I, I was on Xanax um, for like my doctor handed me on Xanax like for 20 years. And um, a drug and alcohol counselor told me off the Xanax. And um, I was off the Xanax for four months. I've been off the Xanax for four months. And they put me on the paracetamol. Xanax is a benzodiazepine from hell. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, you were very fortunate to run into a, into a therapist who got you off of Xanax. I mean, you were blessed, really blessed, you know, because it is a, it's, a, it's a mean drug, you know, and fortunately it's beginning to fall out of repute, even in the non-knowledgeable group, because we're running into all sorts of long-term complications with it worked beautifully for panic disorders immediately. And so the doctor thought they'd done a good thing, and they should. That's what we're for. But the patient generally has a lot of trouble with it later on, even getting off of it. Yes? Are you using any uh, neuroimagery to sort out where a person could be bipolar or um, alcoholic if they had a brain injury when they were a kid? Would that help sort that out? You're talking about the PET scan? The yes. Yeah, PET scan. Brain imagery with PET scan. PET scan is a great tool. It hasn't been around long enough for us to really know some of the stuff we need to know about it. No, I've not seen it used. This number one PET scan user in the country doing the research is a, a woman named Bocal in New York, and she's rewriting or writing all the textbooks on it. It's a major instrument in helping us do a lot of things, but it hasn't, certainly not in the literature has shown us that. Okay. Now we've looked at the obsession as for relief. Let's look at what happens to the alcoholic when the alcoholic drinks. Or when anybody drinks. Alcohol is metabolized to acid aldehyde, the acetic acid, to CO2 and water. There's an enzyme which breaks acid aldehyde down called dopaldehyde. There's also an enzyme which breaks alcohol down called alcohol dehydrogenase. You know, in the big book, and certainly in medical literature, it says that the female alcoholic is ripped much more severely, much more quickly physically than the male. And the reason is because the female alcoholic is deficient in the compound that breaks down the alcohol in the stomach. So the, the female will pass the first one, two, and three passes of metabolism is high-octane alcohol, and women get ripped much more quickly physically than men. Uh, initially, or originally, we knew that acid aldehyde dehydrogenase was decreased under genetic predisposition. So the dope acid aldehyde was not broken down into acetic acid, so it piled up, and this is what causes a hangover. This is also where antabuse works. Antabuse has no place in the treatment of alcoholism for any period of time. Short term on people with severe impulsivity, but uh, frankly, it's a very little benefit. I've never treated an alcoholic yet and wanted to keep drinking who couldn't figure out how to drink around enemies. Uh, they can do it. I mean, they really can. Uh, 
And the whole theory is to scare the hell out of alcoholics. Well, you can't scare us. We've been scared ever since we hit the delivery room floor. That's our name. <laughs> and eventually they end up fearing on God's green earth to keep us from drinking if we don't have a spiritual awakening and a psychic change. This is absolutely the truth. It is absolutely the truth. If this acid aldehyde gets built up too much, then the dope aldehyde will take over, and that's a side chain. The reason for showing me this is because I don't want you to ever walk out of one of these presentations without knowing about THIQ, because you'll hear about it over and over and over. These are called the aldehyde condensation products. What happened is in 1970, a brilliant young researcher named Virginia Davis took a rat had a rat in a cage. Rats will not drink alcohol unless they're bred to do that. And she, this rat would drink the water, but he wouldn't drink the alcohol. She injected this rat with THIQ, which is tetrahydrolysoquinone. For all practical purposes, that's a metabolite of heroin. But she injected that rat's brain with THIQ, and that same rat wouldn't drink the alcohol and would drink it till it died. She did it with macaque monkeys, and she said, I've created an alcoholic animal. Does it happen in humans? In 1987, she published her research. And if she reacted dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, with acid aldehyde, you saw where that comes from. She produced salsalanol, which is a THIQ. Injected that into the animal's brain, nothing happened. Serotonin plus acid aldehyde, tetrahydrobetacarbolate, into the animal's brain, that's a THIQ, nothing happened. And she actually discovered dope aldehyde, reacted it with dopamine, got tetrahydropaparaline, that's a THIQ, injected that in the animal's brain, that's what made the animal drink till it died. She claimed in her research that in postmortem research uh, studies done on skid row bums in Houston and also in alcoholic uh, animals that the concentration of THP was 1,200 times greater than the normal population. Current research in 20 major labs, including the best one in the country, which is at Scripps Institute, says this doesn't happen. 20 other labs, equally reputable, say it does. So part of this $50 million is to look at these aldehyde condensation, condensation products, number one, for the uh, compulsivity to drink, and number two, to look at the progressive nature of alcoholism. This is important to know because within many of your lifetimes, maybe within mine, we will know exactly what THIQ does and exactly uh, what role it plays in both of those, uh, both those uh, entities. Post-acute recovery, and this, for every alcoholic in this room, please listen to what I'm telling you. In the post-acute recovery syndrome, retentive memory will be screwed up for six months to two years, depending on how much we're drinking, how long we've been drinking, or any other drugs involved. When I came in drinking a quart of whiskey at night at 41 years old, I literally lost my short-term memory. I couldn't read the newspaper and remember it for almost a year and a half. Now, this is an anagrade memory. Retrograde memory is fine. I could remember what I learned in medical school. I could remember how to practice medicine. But I couldn't read the newspaper, and I couldn't read my journals for almost six months. That was in 1968. This was not published until 1978. It wasn't published until 1979. I was seeing a psychiatrist. I'd gone to church. I was in AA. I ate in a bucket of manure to stay sober. I mean, that's exactly where I was. And the psychiatrist had me come in a good one. I'd come in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'd come in on Thursdays and Homer would say, Burns, go back to where we started on Tuesday. I'd say, I can't remember where we started. He'd say, you're blocking your therapy. And I'd go, God, I'm blocking my therapy. <laughs> and I'd go to the meeting and say, I got a problem. I got a problem. What's the problem? I'm blocking my therapy. <laughs> and they'd say, tell us the story. And I'd tell them the story. And some old saw on the back row would say, 
Do you can you remember where his office is? I said, Yeah, and he said, Man, for about two years that's as good as it's gonna get. AA <laughs> saved my life. They told me that I was gonna get okay. Now we know in the post-acute recovery syndrome we teach this to people like rooms like this. If you think you burned up your brain, if you're able to find this room, you haven't burned up your brain. It's not right yet. Okay? Wilson described this. He said for a year and a half he couldn't get a job because he was wrapped with waves of self-pity and resentment. He first described the post-acute recovery syndrome. Sleep patterns screwed up for six months to two years in about 85% of people. And we can't give you any sleep except say your prayers, call your sponsor, drink a warm glass of milk, and whatever else will help you relax because <laughs> there is no sleeping pill that works safely. Ambien's not going to work. Those sleeping pills that most of the, the doctors think they can give us, they cannot give us. It just doesn't work. Tryptophan will work. You buy across in some of these uh, avant-garde uh, herbal places, but be real careful about just genuine across the board herbs because some of those have some major medical complications. Simple problem solving and stress management. We know today that simple problem solving and stress management may be screwed up for three to five years. That research came out from Oklahoma within the past year. Wow. Remember the five-year syndrome we run into in AA? You know, relapse rate, the biggest one is in the first year, the second biggest one is in five years. It's called the five-year syndrome between four and six years. And that's literally when we all of a sudden come wake up and if we haven't studied the book, followed a sponsor, literally almost slept with a sponsor and done the drill, we wake up and we ain't got nothing to work with. Our brain's awake and we're scared to death. Any of you ever go through it? I went through it. I absolutely went through it. And it, it, it was a real scary, scary time. So post-acute recovery syndrome. Any questions about this? If you have any questions, please ask them. Yes. Yeah, I was curious. Uh, I remember when I first came in, uh, I was drinking every day. Uh, and I just came into the program and uh, I just flipped. And I went on for a little while and there was an emotional retard. The first thing I got mad about or whatever, I went out and drank. Mm -hmm. But I was just curious how that, how you make, how that, is there some kind of psychological reason why somebody could just come from the bar room, walk into a meeting, not drink that day. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I never did understand. How old are you? Thirty-two. Okay. I don't really have the answer. You know, I mean, I'm not sure even sure what the question is. Well, I know people that uh, stayed sober for two years and didn't even read their book. Mm -hmm. And the day they read their book, they found out how screwed up they were, and they went and got drunk. Well, <laughs> 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 is there any chemical reason for that, or is that just, maybe they just woke up? No, I, I, I think I think if someone really drinks over reading the book in two years, then the rest of the rest of the program is not intact for them. They don't have a sponsor. They don't, they don't do a lot of the things because I stayed sober for 10 years never reading books and, went and, and got into some real self-centered stuff. I had an affair 10 years in the program and I just sat and cried because I didn't think it could possibly happen to me. And that was where some therapy was indicated because I got into that because of the caretaking role of women and what they played in my life. That's where therapy really helped me to understand what my relationship with women was. 
because my wife had changed some of the rules by going back to college and she quit being my caretaker like she had been and the pistol burns the off. <laughs> it didn't piss him off as much as it scared him. And so I, drinking was not an option. Taking drugs was an option. I never thought about it. Having sex was. <laughs> And that's, you know, that Wilson, in 1953, Wilson wrote the first treatise that he called Dependencies. He said that all of his problems were dependencies on money, power, prestige, sex, approval. And I guarantee you, almost everybody will relapse who's committed to recovery when they get some of that taken away and they get so scared that they can't find another option. You know, we spend too much money. We run around with too many different people. We jump in too many beds. We do all of this, what is called excessive behavior, but it's based on dependencies. There's a great line when you read uh, about fear. It said, basically, didn't we start the ball rolling? We started rolling by, mad, by demanding of people things, expectations, taking care of me. You know, and, it, it, and it's, it's not about two months ago, one of my best friends, we were supposed to play golf, and he accepted another invitation because he forgot the one he had that we were going to play. And I mean, tell you, I was so pissed that I wouldn't talk to him for two weeks. You know, instead of dealing with it, I finally did deal with it with a force call him inventory and then just went and talked to him as an adult. But my first reaction as I looked at it was he rejected me because of my dependency. You with me? So if somebody does a scenario you're talking about, it's just basically they're unstable, you know, from the post acute recovery deal, and they haven't got the rest of the program. I think, it's, I think it's, it's as critical to get a sponsor as it is to read the book. It's great if you do them both. But I guarantee you, my sponsor slapped the hell out of me enough times on things that I don't know. I mean, this guy was truly sick. I'm not about to sponsor. He was pathologically sick. But there were times I was going to do something. He would just grab me by the throat and sit there. And I'm not saying everybody should do this. But God sent this angel in my life because he knew my fear and my aggression and my arrogance. And this man was home and said, you little son of a bitch, you're not going to do that. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm dead serious. But then I did have the affair of 10 years because he didn't have me in the room to look at the things I needed to look at. The ways to deal with fear and to deal with rejection and those kind of things other than him doing it. And the way it happened was, when I did that affair, I went and told him, he called my wife and told her. <laughs> you know? Let me tell you, if you were learning to use a book then, by God, you chose for this. <laughs> and a little page of mine came up with eight tapes and gave you, and they were Joe and Charlie's tapes, and I never heard them. And I just said, listen to those tapes and cried all the way through because I saw the program I didn't have. And it was a major, major renaissance and psychic change for Okay? Yes? Yeah, I was wondering if you could explain um, or elaborate a little on the relationship between craving and the alcohol and also is that common with other addictions, including non-chemical ones? Uh, don't know that they, low amplitude that way just simply has to do with the, it's a very indirect measurement of the brain's ability to tolerate stress. But that does not extrapolate into craving. Extrapolates into relief. But craving is a whole different ball game. You know, it's a Pavlovian response. Uh, what was your other part of your question? Does the uh, cessation of mouth waves as a response, uh, has that correlation been shown with other addictions? We've seen it with, yes, we've seen it with some of the other drug addictions. We have not seen it and have been studied that in depth with sex addiction and with eating disorders. 
which we now can include in all the editions because we've changed the whole definition of addiction. That study is still being done, and so this part has not been approved or correlated. But we can with the other drugs. Now, the question we can answer is what constitutes the drug of choice? Why do some people fix it? We know why. We can't prove it yet. Because it corrects some of the brain chemistry that the other drug doesn't. I mean, we're absolutely certain that we just can't prove it yet. Our techniques are not that good yet. PET scan will help us do it. And yet. Just talking about the equation and all that. What's the benefit of serotonin? Talking about depression, what's the benefit of serotonin? Well, serotonin, uh, most people think that with a true chemical imbalance, that, that and serotonin is the drug that is, that is not answered, is what constitutes the drug of choice. Why do some people fix it? We know why. We can't prove it yet. Because it corrects some of the brain chemistry that the other drug doesn't. I mean, we're absolutely certain that. We can't prove it yet. Our techniques are not that good yet. PET scan will help us do it. Haven't yet. Uh, talking about depression, what's the benefit of serotonin? Well, serotonin, uh, most people think that with a true chemical imbalance, that, that, that serotonin is the drug that is, that is not as good as it should be. And that's why they brought in all those actual blowouts, because they blocked the reuptake of, 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 of uh, serotonin. Serotonin also does it with a whole bunch of other neurotransmitters, and suppose in certain individuals, Serotonin's not a good drug for certain people. But in certain people, it's a drug of choice because it helps block those others uh, in addition to just serotonin. And these people basically, the whole idea is to know your timing because some people claim if, if a person gets too depressed, they can't get into the program. They look, their brain won't work. Uh, and I've seen some people that's true. I haven't seen many, but I've seen some. But that needs to be an expert who makes that call. Not just a family doc, not just an internist, it needs to be an addiction psychiatrist or an addiction specialist. There's that is only no help for hey, Will it help a person just come into the program? Well, yeah, it can, but, but again, I try to be sure that we don't use serotonin or some of those drugs in people early in recovery, unless they're vegetating. I just don't use them. I just don't use them. I really think it's real critical. I'm thinking a generic statement, but I've got to make it. I think it's real critical we give less medicine and more big book and more meetings and more sponsors. I think that is absolutely critical. If we're not doing that, and I, and I, and I hope that God I keep stressing it, I appreciate the question. If we don't do that and we get off into these medicines of short-term deals, I've been on damn near every medicine in the world. So Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson would have been on damn air because in 1944 and 1955, this man was certifiably, almost psychotically depressed. And you know what he wrote during that period of time? He wrote the 12 and 12. He wrote the traditions. His pain, his pain was what developed our program. Now, you may not recall this, but if you've ever studied enough about any history, uh, Father Dowling came in that bill 1940 November. They fell in love, literally. And for 20 years, they well, Ed Dowling was the one who kept Bill Wilson between the curves. Ed Dowling was the, his spiritual sponsor and literally kept him between the curves. But he called Eddie Thatcher, his sponsor, and Eddie couldn't stay sober. 
He didn't talk to Dr. Bob that much. They were in love with each other. They didn't talk that much. But Dowling and he exchanged something like 150 letters during that time. And the night that Dowling came up to see Wilson in New York, he came to see him because Dowling was a Jesuit. And the Jesuits saint, or the one who started Jesuit movement, was Saint Ignatius. And Ignatius developed a two-standard meditation or a two-week period of what he called meditative techniques. And when Dowling looked at that, he said, my God, Wilson's 12 steps are exactly Ignatius' two weeks of meditation. So he decides to come and meet this man who's written these 12 steps. And when he comes up that night about 10 o'clock at night, and it's raining, and Wilson's saying, God, here's another drunk. He comes up there and he's on a cane because he was crippled and he used a cane. And he came in and they fell in love. They got to talking. And Wilson asked him a major question. God, this just turns me on more than anything I can tell you. Dowling asked Wilson, or Wilson asked Dowling that night, will I ever be free? And Dowling said, no. You are the one, you are one of the ones who has been blessed with divine discontent. <laughs> and he said, these are, and that was a quote in essence. But what, he, what I've come to know this is, is that in God's Salvation Army of Alcoholics and Anonymous, it's the only army where the wounded soldiers are the ones who serve. In every other army, the wounded soldier is sent back to the back lines. In AA, the wounded soldiers step up and we do the work of divine discontent. And I love this because it tells me not only I've listened to people who are just mad they're alcoholics and say, oh, that pisses me off. And I'm just thinking, I think it's great, you know. <laughs> I think it's wonderful. For some reason, this just lights me up. Because not only does it tell me God loves me, he picks me. Does he make me an alcoholic? I don't know. Does he make a grandfather an alcoholic? I don't know. But when I finally got there, he said, not only have I got a place for you, very few other people can have it except somebody just like you, you know. And, and to the day Wilson died, he never forgot that Dallin said, you'll never be free. How many times he said, son of a bitch, have I got to go through these steps again today? This is, I'd just like to sit down and rest, you know? Sandy <laughs> 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 Beach told this great story one time when he said, he was like that on Saturday afternoon, he hear the guy next door, it's like Russian roulette. He's playing with our alcohol, it's like Russian roulette. Guy next door is mowing the yard, he hear the beer cans pop, and he said, why am I going to do this four step? And he says, click. The divine discontent. But I absolutely think most people should not be on drugs. I absolutely know some people should. But our first big product for us is spiritual. It's the first year I was in the program, I could go from room to room and practice medicine. I had no problem. But there'd be times, six and seven times a day, I'd be going to room to room and just stop and start sobbing. I didn't know why. I'd go in the office and get on my knees and say, God, help me. Call my sponsor. I'd say, Jim, I'm flying far. He'd say, you get up all the time? Yeah. Did you do meditation? Yeah. You come in the evening night? Yeah. Did you see your patients all the time? Yeah. You'll be okay. Thanks, Jim. I felt fine. And I got to clean this instead of be crying again. I'd go in and I said, Jim, I'm flying far. Did you get up all the time? Yeah. Did you do meditation? Yeah. Did you do the same drill? But that man's voice could calm every demon in me. That's spiritual. So what we need to be selling is sponsorship and big book and meetings. There's a diagram that I teach the guys down at the healing place, and it's the balanced spiritual triangle. Here's a triangle on its point, on a base, and it's on its point, and the left upper point, and it's perfectly balanced, the left upper corner of the triangle is meetings. The right upper corner is sponsor. The point is big book, 
setting on a base of honesty and today. And if you're spiritually unbalanced or if I'm spiritually unbalanced, go check that. Now, all that's in the book. But that's a diagram I have them to carry around with them to go and carry in their pocket and get out and look at it there. Okay, that was a long, windy answer about serotonin. I think it was about that. <laughs> okay, now, now, treatment. Abstinence. Once a cucumber gets pickled, it'll never be a cucumber again. And that's just the way it is. You say, well, it's intuitively obvious. No, let's look at it. The Sobels in 1978 said they taught 22 people to drink successfully. By 1982, they were either all dead or had to lead a life of abstinence. The Rand Corporation, with over 100 patients, said that they taught 100 to drink successfully. In 1982, 2% were still drinking successfully, and within the next two years, none of them were. Did we learn our lesson? No. Audrey Kishlan, in the early 90s, wrote a book called Moderate Drinking and defined a, mo a movement called Moderation Management. A psychologist who's named Marlette in Washington, they were both from Washington State, Marlette picked this up called the Harm Reduction, basically saying if you drink less, you're less likely to run over people and push your health. And he's done all sorts of research. This man is a brilliant man in this area. Now, Kishline was an alcoholic. Marlette's a drug addict. Kishline said she could drink moderately. Marlette didn't try to drink moderately or take drugs, but he has done some of the most... The devil always comes dressed in his best clothes. Take that home with you. He always comes dressed in his best clothes. And Marlette is an impeccable professional. And the stuff he publishes looks great. If you just raise the lid and smell it, it still smells like shit. <laughs> and, I, and I still think it's exactly what it smells like. And Kishline, the take-home message on this is this. Uh, last February, Kishline went on online with their chat rooms and told everybody she could not drink in moderation. She had to quit. In March, while drunk, she ran over a man and his kid and killed them both. She is now getting ready to go to jail. And as and has, through her lawyer, issued a statement that moderation management is for alcoholics who won't deal with their problem. Uh, is that what it was? But I think, you know, they are still screaming moderation management. And for alcoholics who are bodily and mentally different, and that's your decision, it's mine. I am bodily and mentally different. I cannot drink. But it, was there a, one of us who wanted to drink and puke on the carpets and run over people and kill people? Is that what we started out to do? And we just love to drink like normal people. But it ain't gonna happen. Divine discontent. <laughs> Short-term detox. 85% of people quit drinking abruptly don't need medical detox. 15% of going to DTs, 15% of them will die, so seek medical help. Intermediate can be any form of treatment, outpatient, inpatient, AA, whatever indicated, determined by knowledgeable people. Long-term AA, long-term AA or NA if it's drug addiction. I'm not going to get into the issues of how these intermingle. 
I'm not even going there because that's not what this was about. <laughs> what this was about to teach you the biopsychosocial model of, of alcoholism, that we are bodily and mentally different from our fellows, we're irritable, restless, and discontented, and we do have an illness or a malady. And that's it. Now, if it gives you the relief that I hope it does, great. If it gives you the information on what you're dealing with, great. And I appreciate your tolerance and patience in staying with me for almost two hours. Thank you.